Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Will SCOTUS Clarify Which Waters Are Regulated Under the Clean Water Act. Please welcome Darren Baxt the Heritage Foundation's Senior Research Fellow for Environmental Policy and Regulation. Good afternoon, my name is Darren Baxt, and as was mentioned, I'm Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation here at the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environment. I wanna thank you for joining us today as we discuss one of the most important environmental cases of recent memory, SACA versus EPA. This is a Supreme Court case that could finally provide some clarification as to what waters are regulated under the Clean Water Act. For the court to provide clarity, it will require examining the meaning of the term navigable waters, and more specifically, the language waters of the United States that makes up the definition of, nav of navigable waters. For decades, the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers have taken a very broad approach when defining the scope of its regulatory power. This approach has led to significant concerns regarding federal intrusion into state and local matters, federal gut gutting of private property rights, and overreach when it comes to application of the Commerce Clause. Further, there has been signi uh, significant confusion for farmers, home builders, local governments, and pretty much anyone affected by the Clean Water Act. We are pleased to be joined today by Damian Schiff, Senior Attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and Lead Counsel for the Sackets. We'll have a conversation that I hope helps to lay out the basics of the case, what's at issue, and why this case is so important. Also, please send in your questions, and we'll try to get to as many as we as we can. So uh, let's get right to it. Damien, uh, first, thank you for joining us. Sorry, I'm um, my mute was not as, as, as um, I'm not as good with mute as I had hoped, but thanks, Darren, very much for having me. Thanks to the Heritage Foundation for the opportunity to talk about the Sackett's case. Yeah, thanks, and... Uh, so let's just start really simple and get to the about talk about the timing of the case. So um, I want to talk about the status. So when is the case going to be heard and when would you expect there to be an opinion? Uh, the, the case will be the first case argued uh, in the new term, October 3rd at 10 a.m. And as far as when we expect an opinion, uh, you know, I suspect that, that given the the significance of the environmental issues at play, the importance of the Clean Water Act, and how controversial the issue has been over the years, I suspect the court will probably take its time on this opinion, uh, even regardless of whether there are dissents. But particularly if there are dissents, I would suspect that we wouldn't have a decision until at least uh, sometime in the in the new year. So, Damien, before we get into like the legal details and big picture implications. How did this case even get to the Supreme Court? It's been a it's been a long uh, a long procedural route that began in uh, federal district court in Idaho in April of 2008. That's when uh, we at PLF filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Sacketts to challenge EPA's compliance order that basically put a stop on the Sacketts' efforts to build their family home near uh, Priest Lake, Idaho. And the case was quickly kicked out on a procedural ground that the uh, SACAS didn't have the right to sue EPA at that time because the compliance order that the agency had issued 
wasn't considered by at least many lower courts to be judicially reviewable. The Ninth Circuit affirmed that decision, and the Supreme Court took it up in 2011 and ruled in 2012 that the Sackas did have a right to sue immediately to challenge the compliance order and, and more importantly, to challenge EPA's jurisdiction over the Sackett's home building. The case was remanded in 2012 and spent some time in the district court. Uh, finally, the district court ruled in 2019 that the Sackett's uh, on the merits did have to seek a permit from the feds that their property did contain navigable water subject to EPA's jurisdiction. On appeal, the Ninth Circuit in 2021, just in August of last year, affirmed that. And shortly thereafter, we sought review from the Supreme Court again, this time on the merits. And that petition was granted in January of this year. And so that's where we where we are now. So it's been a long journey for the Sacketts. Um, you've kind of touched on it, but can you tell us a little bit more about the Sacketts and their experience that they've had with the Clean Water Act? The, the Sacketts uh, purchased this um, this property. When I talk about the, the, the lot, it's a rather modest piece of property. It's about two-thirds of an acre, and it's located within a largely built-out residential subdivision, uh, again, near Priest Lake, Idaho. They bought the lot in 2004, and by the spring of 2007, they had obtained their local county building department's approval to begin construction. And at that time, the Sacketts had their own excavation company, and so they were using their own workers and equipment in order to start building their home. But within just a day or two of their having started the construction process and trucking in gravel to lay down a foundation for their house, the uh, construction workers were, were confronted on the site by officials from the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers. And these officials essentially told the Sackett's construction workers that, uh, in their view, the site contained wetlands that were subject to federal regulation under the Clean Water Act. And because there was no permit that allowed that construction, they recommended that the construction of the house cease. And then about six months after that, EPA followed up this, this verbal warning with a formal compliance order, essentially telling the SACs that they had violated the law and that if they didn't immediately begin the process of restoring the, the lot to its pre-disturbance condition that they would be subject to significant civil penalties. Then uh, that shortly thereafter is when we filed the lawsuit in federal district court, which has been uh, winding its way through the lower federal courts and the Supreme Court for some time. But that's that's how the, how the controversy began. I, I might not be right about this, but weren't, weren't there like property owners right near the Sackets that actually did build houses and didn't have the same problem? That is correct. In fact, between the Sackett's lot and Priest Lake itself, it's about 300 feet from the Sackett's lot to Priest Lake. In that 300-foot band, there is a row of about a half dozen houses that uh, have been there for some time and that, uh, as far as we know, nobody ever objected to, whether that be EPA or the Corps or anybody else with respect to needing a federal permit. So, I think it is really important to emphasize when one looks at the facts of the case uh, and uh, to underscore just how difficult it is for an ordinary property owner to really have reasonable notice that his or her property might be subject to EPA's control under the Clean Water Act. You know, here you have probably the most normal, innocuous, inoffensive type of land use imaginable, the, the construction of a single family home. And not only is it totally um, unobjectionable, but it's an activity that was going on within an existing residential subdivision. So 
it's really hard to imagine any other case where you would have even less of a reason to expect that your your normal land use activity would trigger significant federal authority or federal control. But that's precisely what happened to the Sacketts. So let's turn to the, the legal issues of the case. And so what is the legal question at issue before the court? The precise question is, what is the proper test for determining when wetlands are considered, quote, waters of the United States, subject to the Clean Water Act? So let me follow up. Is So is this case only about wetlands, or do you think the court could help provide clarification as to what's meant for um, all waters of the United States? I, I think it's the latter, in part because the the proper test that certainly that we're advocating for to determine whether, in fact, a wetland can be regulated under the Clean Water Act necessarily implies an analysis that goes beyond the mere question of wetlands versus waters. And what I mean by that is that the Clean Water Act is written in such a way that that not only does a feature have to be considered a quote-unquote water, but it has to be, as the text of the statute makes clear, it has to be a water of the United States. And that full phrase, I think, necessarily implies an analysis not just about when wetlands can be regulated, but more importantly, what are the types of waters that are within that subset of regulated items that can be considered of the United States? Like a water is sometimes in connected to a particular other water. It's like, it's in, so you kind of need to know what water the United States means in order to figure out what a wetlands means. And is that right? That's right. I, I mean, the, 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 the basic argument that we're advancing that's based upon a, a plurality decision from the Supreme Court in 2006 on the similar issue is that wetlands standing alone are not understood in sort of common language to be quote unquote waters that although wetlands may have some significant relationships with waters that you wouldn't normally just call a wetland a water. And so because of that, and because of the fact that the statute doesn't refer to wetlands in this key jurisdictional uh, section, but instead just refers only to waters, that it necessarily then implies that if you're going to regulate wetlands, they have to be so closely connected to waters that basically they function as a single unit. And it's that that significant interrelationship that we think is a necessary aspect of EPA's jurisdiction, but which EPA and the lower courts have believed to be unnecessary. And, you know, the Sackett's case is a great example of that, in that even if there are wetlands on the Sackett's So, Go ahead. So, sorry, in your your, um, your arguments, you're you're, you're arguing for a a two-step analysis. And can you explain what this analysis is that you're proposing? Yes. And, and this goes back to what we were just talking about with respect to how the statute's definitional section is, is worded. That definitional section doesn't mention wetlands at all. And in fact, that definitional section hasn't been changed at all since Congress enacted the law in 1972. That definitional section uses the phrase waters of the United States. And so as a matter of, of, of grammar, and syntax, that phrase necessarily implies that you need two things for EPA to regulate. You need to have a water, and that water has to be of the United States. And so the test that we've offered the court is, is a two-step test that, or framework, if you will, that uh, is parallel to that, to that linguistic phrasing. The first step focuses on, well, 
when is something a water? And the answer to that is by and large a question of, of plain meaning. When one thinks of waters, I think one thinks of streams and creeks and rivers and lakes and what have you. And thus, to the, the extent to which a wetland can be considered a water then necessarily requires this close connection that we were talking about earlier, that, that the wetland really has to be so uh, bound up with uh, the nearby or adjacent water that effectively the two features are indistinguishable. And that is, is the standard that we are offering for when a wetland can be considered a water. Now, the second step, what does of the United States mean? That's kind of a funny phrase for a layman, but as a legal matter, that phrase does have a pretty significant pedigree. Of course, there were other federal statutes before the Clean Water Act was passed that dealt with various aspects of, of water pollution. And one of those laws, the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899, used that same phrase, the waters of the United States. And that law had been interpreted by the courts for decades to basically be limited to something like a traditional navigable water, that is a body of water that is not only navigable in fact, but that can serve as, as a, uh, a highway of, of commerce among the several states. And so our argument is that, that for a water to be of the United States, it has to be a water that can serve this, this commercial transportation function. So something, for example, like Priest Lake, uh, which is a, a large body of water, which obviously is navigable in fact, which can serve as a highway of commerce, something like that, I think would clearly be a, a water of the United States. But in contrast, say a, a man-made ditch that has only a, a few cubic feet per second to flow in it uh, on an annual basis, something like that clearly wouldn't qualify as a water of the United States. It has no capability of, of serving as a, a segment of interstate commerce so that is, in a nutshell, the, the, the test that we would offer to the Supreme Court that's derived, again, from the text. What are waters? And then which waters are of the United States? So, Damien, let me get back to step one a second to understand what waters are. Can you explain what waters you're talking about? Like, what I would imagine would be something that an ordinary person would view, would think of as an actual water. Um, so I was wondering what you what you think is considered a water. I, I think it is, as, as you, you suggest, Darren, it's kind of a plain meaning analysis. So you can go back to, again, in the court's 2006 decision in Rapanos versus United States, which was the last time the court addressed or attempted to address this question of the scope of the Clean Water Act. There, Justice Scalia wrote a, a four-justice plurality opinion. And in answering this question, what's a water, he says, well, let's look at the dictionaries. And when you look at the dictionaries, it's clear that waters or a water is something that in common parlance would have uh, water on it and would be a, a hydrogeographic feature that would be referred to as something like a stream or a creek or, or a lake. Now, he goes through this plain meaning analysis to, to put that in contrast with a wetland, which, uh, as he concluded, and as, as which we argue in our briefing in the Supreme Court now, is not in common parlance considered a water. You know, I, I think it, uh, it's important to bear in mind that that uh, although the concept of wetlands was certainly not new in 1972 when the Clean Water Act was passed, and although even at that time, I think people understood that wetlands have a role to play in, in preserving habitat and water quality, 
Even then, Congress recognized that wetlands are not the same thing as waters. In our briefing in the Supreme Court, we cite a few federal laws that were passed in the decade or so leading up to the Clean Water Act, where Congress clearly distinguishes between types of waters and other features, such as wetlands. So I, I, I think it's definitely definitely uh, uh, a convincing argument that that waters in ordinary language don't include wetlands. And so to the extent that wetlands might at any extent be regulated under the Clean Water Act, they have to be in that unique circumstance where you have something like a shoreline wetland, where you have an obvious body of water, and then you have at some point land. And you, if you start in the middle of that body of water, you start walking or paddling shoreward, at some point you're going to hit land. But before you hit land, there may be some point at which Maybe it's wet, maybe it's moist, maybe it's soggy, but it's not quite water, but it's not quite land. That difficulty in precisely drawing that boundary, well, when actually does the water end? When does the wetland begin? It's that difficulty which I think the Supreme Court in prior cases has said, we'll let the, the EPA and the Corps uh, have principal jurisdiction in, in deciding how to draw those boundaries. But it's only when that boundary drying problem is present, that wetlands can otherwise be considered waters. If it's instead a case, again, like with the Sackets, where their residential lot is bounded on, on all sides, either by developed roads or by other developed buildings, where there's clearly no difficulty in distinguishing their property from any other arguable water, in those circumstances where that line drawing rationale is absent, it really is no longer plausible to then to construe the statutory text of waters to extend to that point. And so that that is is the the standard that we offer in our step one, which again is a standard derived directly from Justice Scalia's opinion in Rapanos in 2006. And we think it is um, uh, the best textualist understanding of what Congress intended by using that phrase, the waters in the United States. So, Damien, central to your case, is my view, is the application of the Commerce Clause. So first, could you, could, you, could you explain why the Commerce Clause is important in this case? And then second, um, at what point do you think the EPA and Corps are going beyond or would be going beyond what is authorized under the Commerce Clause? Uh, the, you know, the, the, the federal government is a government of limited powers. There's no sort of environmental law power that Congress has, but rather virtually all federal environmental law is justified on the theory that it's a regulation of commerce among the several states, which is an enumerated power that Congress has. And so the extent to which the Clean Water Act is constitutional has to depend upon whether it's truly an authentic regulation of interstate commerce. Now, there's been a lot of, of dispute over the last several decades as to how far does the Commerce Clause go. Thankfully, this case doesn't require the court to wade into that controversy again, because we already know from prior Supreme Court decisions that when Congress enacted the Clean Water Act, it did not intend to use the full extent of its Commerce Clause power. In fact, the Supreme Court in a, in a 2001 decision called Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County versus Army Corps of Engineers, commonly called the Swank case. There, the court ruled that the Clean Water Act is an exercise of Congress's more limited channels of commerce power. This is a theory that was developed over the last 150 years or so that says that as part of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, it has the power to regulate the channels of commerce. And navigable waters are a type of sort of aquatic 
channel of commerce. And that is precisely what the Supreme Court has said the Clean Water Act is about. So because of that statutory interpretation, I, I think what we can say is even if there may be an activity that Congress could theoretically regulate under a Clean Water Act that was justified by this full commerce power, we don't, uh, we don't have to um, worry about it given the Clean Water Act that we do have, because we do know that the Clean Water Act that we do have is a much more modest, much more limited exercise of Congress's commerce power. And what that means on the ground, essentially, is that when Congress regulates the channels of commerce, it can regulate what happens in those channels themselves, like pollution in the Mississippi or what have you. And it can also regulate activities outside of those channels that might have some impact. But what it can't do is precisely what EPA and the Corps have tried to do with the Clean Water Act, and that is to regulate uh, land like the Sackett's Lot, irrespective of the impact that any land use might have on a downstream channel of commerce. And I think that's something for, for the audience uh, this afternoon really to, 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 to focus on, is that under the Clean Water Act, if you are doing anything in a regulated water, say a wetland, you're going to be regulated even if your activity will never have any impact or never, even if any pollutant you discharge will never actually reach a traditional navigable water because that wetland itself is considered as much a regulated area as the downstream traditional navigable water. So given that interpretation, you can see how EPA's understanding of the statute is way beyond an idea of, of the channels of commerce power. Now, again, it's not... A constitutional issue. It's really a question of statutory interpretation that we know whether Congress could reach that far under its commerce power. It deliberately chose not to exercise that full power when it enacted the Clean Water Act. So I'm gonna, maybe I'm going to throw a curveball here, um, Damian, but what about an argument like, okay, somebody is driving on a highway from one state to another then they get out of the vehicle and they go to water and then they engage in some interstate commerce like fishing or whatever. Is is that whole thing the flow of commerce in your view? You know, uh, going from the highway and then to the water and... Yeah, arguably. I mean, uh, there, are, um, there are a number of cases that have construed this channels of commerce power pretty broadly. But, you know, again, just as... as with respect to, 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 to our, our last discussion, last question, I don't even think that we, we need to get that far with the hypotheticals because not only do we know that the Clean Water Act is a channels of commerce enactment, but we can also look at, well, how has Congress used that power statutorily in regulating uh, water pollution in the, in the Clean Water Act? And, and so we know that you're only regulated as a statutory matter under the Clean Water Act if you discharge a pollutant into a regulated water. If that pollutant never reaches regulated waters, then you're never regulated, regardless of, of any other sort of commercial connection that one might be able to construct between the activity and either interstate commerce generally or, or interstate commerce along the channels of, of aquatic interstate channels. That, that, that additional connection is as a statutory matter neither here nor there. And so I think even, even if in your hypothetical, even if maybe that kind of camping, uh, you know, conduct uh, 
on the you know the shoulder of, of, of an interstate highway, even if that might be regulable under that channels of commerce power, it's not a type of activity that Congress has chose to regulate pursuant to its channels of commerce power in the particular statute, uh, namely the Clean Water Act that we're dealing with. So one of the big issues, Damien, is is having a workable definition of waters of the United States or, or WOTUS um, that stays within the meaning of the Clean Water Act and is actually consistent with the Constitution. And I'd argue that Justice Kennedy's significant nexus test that was in the Rapanos case that you mentioned fails these requirements. And could you briefly explain what this significant nexus test is and whether you think it should apply and whether it's even workable? The significant nexus test, uh, which was formulated by Justice Kennedy in his concurring opinion in Rapanos, says that the EPA and the Army Corps can regulate wetlands if either on their own or in combination with the similarly situated features in the same area have a significant nexus to a downstream navigable water, and significant nexus being defined as significantly affect the physical, chemical, biological integrity of that downstream water. That uh, is, as even as I just articulated, uh, is not only a fairly complicated test, but one that has a tremendous amount of vagueness to it that can be um, opportunized by EPA and the Corps to greatly expand their jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. And as we've seen since that decision was issued in Rapanos in 2006, over the last 15, 16 years, we've seen that precisely happen, that there has been no effective limits on the agency's authority to regulate well beyond navigable waters. I think, uh, not to be too cute about it, but I think you can't look for a better proof of that than the Sackett's own case, where here you have a residential lot that has no surface water connection whatsoever to any other water body, whether it's whether it's the Priest Lake itself or whether it's uh, the drainage ditch on the other side of the road in front of the Sackett's lot, no surface water connection. And in fact, any subsurface water connection is actually, you could almost consider a reverse connection in that the flow of water is not from the Sackett's property to uh, the ditch across the street. It's the other way around. It's the wetlands and the ditch across the street that through an underground connection allegedly flow to the Sackett's property. Yet despite what amounts to a, to a virtual isolation, EPA and the lower courts still said, yes, this area can be regulated under the significant nexus test. So th- I think that's one knock against the test. Another knock is that it's been very difficult to apply. Since 2006, the EPA and the Corps issued a couple of guidance documents to try to provide clarity over how to implement the significant nexus test. Those didn't succeed, which is why the EPA under the Obama administration issued a clean water rule, which attempted to operationalize the significant nexus test. That failed tremendously when the Sixth Circuit and and a few other district courts concluded that the rule um, could not be reconciled with the Clean Water Act or with the Rapanos decision itself. So I think you have um, a test that not only doesn't function as a meaningful limit on the agency's authority, but it's also one that's very difficult to to figure out how to even apply. And even the mere process of trying to figure out how to apply it is incredibly expensive. If, If one actually wanted to have a significant nexus analysis done, one couldn't do it on one's own. One would have to hire environmental consultants 
would have to do a significant amount of, of, of on-the-ground testing. And all that process could cost tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, just to have the analysis done. That's in, in and of itself not even a guarantee that one could even obtain a permit if that analysis should conclude that, that the area is jurisdictional. But I think the biggest problem with the significant nexus test, as, as I articulated what the test is, whether you have the significant nexus to a downstream water, it's totally atextual. There is no mention of the phrase significant nexus in the statute. There's no mention of that phrase in even the legislative history. It's a term that was used in passing by the Supreme Court in that 2001 Swank decision. And it was a term used in passing by the court to describe an earlier decision. And yet this term then became for Justice Kennedy, the lodestar for interpreting the scope of the act. And I, and, and I think that ultimately is why the, the test is, is sort of irremediably defective, that it, it, it totally operates, it operates really sort of, sort of in, in complete deracination from the statutory text. Again, in contrast, I would say from what the Sackets are offering now, this two-step framework that we've been talking about, which whether you like it or not, is a framework that is directly tied to the statutory text. What's a water and what is of the United States? That's a, an analysis that's totally absent from the significant nexus test. And I think that's one reason why we've seen over the last 16 years why the significant nexus test hasn't worked out. It, it, it's vague, it's opaque, and it therefore functions as essentially a green light to the agencies to continue their efforts to expand the scope of the act. Damon, I have a, maybe a, a simple question, at least on the surface, but maybe not so simple. Why didn't you just argue that the Supreme Court should adopt the, the plurality opinion in Rapanos? Just go ahead and rubber stamp that thing. I, I, I think no doubt if the court were to do that, that would be a, a huge improvement over the status quo. There, there's no question about it. Now, why, why are the Sacketts asking for more than that? Well, it's in part um, the question presented. When the court granted cert the second time in January, the court rewrote our question presented. We presented the case to the court as one that was focused principally on this question of when is a water uh, also, uh, I should excuse me, when is a wetland considered as a water? And in rephrasing the question presented, the court simply quoted the statutory text and asked for what is the proper test for determining when a wetland is a water of the United States. So I think the court definitely is interested in issuing a rule that would be comprehensive, that would provide guidance for decades to come, not just to the agencies, but also to the regulated public as to the scope of the act. And I think it's a totally appropriate thing to do when one considers that for almost as long as this statute has been on the books, this is its 50th anniversary, controversy has raged over the scope of the act. And despite some attempts by Congress to, to amend the act to dampen the controversy, despite repeated attempts by the agencies through rulemaking to solve the controversy, despite earlier attempts from the Supreme Court through a, a more minimalist approach to, to, to remedy the controversy, none of that has worked. And so I, I think this is a, an excellent opportunity for the court to provide appropriately presented in this case, a truly comprehensive standard that addresses not just the question of, of, of what does it mean to be a water, but more thoroughly, 
when is a feature, a truly regulable feature as a water of the United States? So, David, I want to talk about some practical implications of the case and, and ask you a kind of a basic question. And that is, why is this case even important? Why should we care about it? I think it's important uh, for sort of your your average layperson in in two ways. One in the very direct way, in that, as the Sacketts case demonstrates, this can happen to anybody. You know, the Sacketts are not uh, some uh, sophisticated uh, developers. They're not. They don't own um, uh, a large company where you would expect with compliance counsel that these things could already be worked out. They're just an ordinary couple who purchased the property, wanting to build their their dream family home on. And if this type of regulatory ensnarement can happen to them, there's no reason why it can't happen to anybody else. But I would say, secondly, even if you're a person, say, who lives, you know, say you live in Manhattan or, or Los Angeles and, and um, you know, the, the, there's no green space around, there's not even an arguable question about whether, whether uh, your property has a wetland, I think you should still care because of the immense cost that Clean Water Act compliance adds to things like, like food, the price of food, or the price of gasoline, or the price of, uh, of housing. One of the amicus briefs that was submitted in support of the Sacketts in the second round uh, provided uh, an updated economic analysis of what the average annual uh, cost for compensatory mitigation under the Clean Water Act is. This is when you get a permit from the, from the agencies, you usually have to provide mitigation, either creating wetlands or preserving other wetlands is the price for your permit. And this study estimates that the annual cost is $4 billion. And that those are additional costs that are passed on to the consumer in the forms of the price of new housing or the cost of, of, of agricultural commodities or the cost of, of natural resources, mining, what have you. All these activities that trigger the Clean Water Act regulation because of EPA and the Corps' broad understanding of the act. So I think in both of those ways, this is a case whereby the, the average or, or the ordinary American citizen should be interested in. So, Damon, if the court provided clarity and adopts the analysis that you're recommending, what, what will it mean as a practical matter for farmers, counties, small businesses, and, and just basically property owners in general? I think certainly, you know, if the court were to adopt the the, the full two-step framework, I, I think it would mean that a tremendous amount of, of otherwise productive land in the country that right now is not being fully utilized could be utilized in, in, the, in the form of, let's say, new housing development. We have an afford, certainly here in California, we have a huge affordable housing problem. One reason for that is that the supply of housing is so low and the demand so high because there are so many environmental and other regulations that prohibit the the cost-effective development of of land for housing and other uses. The Clean Water Act is a big part of that significant regulatory cost. If the Clean Water Act is not as broad as it is now, necessarily follows that you're going to have more production. And I think the same thing is true with respect to, to farming. Here at Pacific Legal Foundation, we've represented a number of farmers who've had significant litigation brought against them by EPA and the Army Corps saying that, oh, sure, you were farming on your property, but now because you've changed the type of crop or because you've expanded your farming into new areas, you needed the Clean Water Act permit for that. And since you didn't get it, we're now going to sue you for hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not a million or more, in civil penalties. 
So for farmers and ranchers in that circumstance, there would also be a, a huge improvement. Because again, one of the great features, I think, of the two-step framework and in sort of um, contradistinction, one of the great flaws of the significant nexus test is that with our framework, there is hardly any difficulty in administration, meaning it's a test that by its very nature is one that requires basically only ordinary visual observation. It's something that any ordinary citizen should be able by and large to tell whether or not his or her activity is going to be regulated. In contrast with the significant nexus test, it's almost impossible to know ahead of time whether one's going to be regulated. And the costs of even finding out whether one might be regulated are oftentimes cost prohibitive. And I think that's a, a real big uh, defect with the significant nexus test in contrast the benefit of the test that we offer that should be emphasized because a lot of the controversies, whether it's the Sackets or some of these farmers I mentioned who have been sued, these could have been avoided if, in fact, it had been easy to find out ahead of time whether one's property is regulated. I mean, the Sackets aren't scofflaws. Most people are not scofflaws. If they know what they're going to do is wrong, they're not going to do it. They don't want to create legal liability. But if it's hard to find out, or if you have no reason to think that your activity is regulated, then you're going to have what we have, in fact, seen over the last several decades, which is people caught unawares and then really put under the screws by significant federal enforcement. So just remind the audience to feel free to, to ask questions, uh, submit your questions in the text box and We've managed to answer questions already. Um, some of you have anticipated the questions I was going to ask, so that's great. Um, Damon, I, I can uh, imagine, well, easily imagine, that if the court adopts a somewhat narrow definition of WOTUS, the, the claims are going to be, oh, my gosh, it's going to be dirty water in this country. Uh, you know, what are we going to do? The environment's, you know, in trouble. How would you respond to this? I would, uh, I would immediately assuage those fears. There is not going to be any sort of environmental catastrophe um, uh, because of the court's uh, ruling, uh, what we hope, adopting the, the two-step framework for a number of reasons. One is that uh, the Clean Water Act doesn't prohibit the states from regulating their own land and water resources. So regardless of the scope of the Clean Water Act, states remain fully free to regulate at a higher, more intense level. And in fact, we've, we even have empirical evidence that when the Supreme Court in the past has somewhat limited the scope of the Clean Water Act, some states that, that haven't liked that consequence have then enhanced their own state water quality laws to, to fill in the gap, so to speak. But even setting aside the question of, of the, the state's ability to regulate, even if the feds don't, the, uh, the scope of the Clean Water Act is not necessarily going to be completely limited just because certain types of wetlands are not uh, considered themselves to be waters of the United States. And the reason why I say that is because of a 2020 decision that some of our audience members may, may be familiar with called County of Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund. This is the Supreme Court's most recent Clean Water Act case before the Sackett's case. And there the issue before the court was a little different from jurisdiction it wasn't about what waters are jurisdictional, but it was about when can your far upstream pollution discharge be regulated as a discharge, even if it wasn't immediately discharged into a regulated water. So in that case, the question was you had a, 
uh, uh, the county sewage plant that was discharging into groundwater. And ultimately, the groundwater then percolated out into the Pacific Ocean and released certain pollutants into the Pacific Ocean. And the Supreme Court held that in certain circumstances, those types of discharges can be regulated. So what does that mean uh, for, the, for, for wetlands? What that means is that simply because under the two-step framework, your wetland or your creek may not itself be a regulated water, if the pollutant you discharge ultimately ends up reaching a traditional navigable water, like, say, Priest Lake or, or the Mississippi River or what have you, then you may very well still be regulated. So I think that's another important thing to bear in mind about, uh, about how narrowing the, the, the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a lot, um, doesn't necessarily mean that, that a whole class of pollutant discharges will no longer be regulated. And I think it's also important to bear in mind, too, that not just under state law, but under uh, common law, things like nuisance actions actions are still very much available, even by private parties. And there's nothing in the Clean Water Act that would prevent, for example, say one private party from bringing a nuisance action against um, another private party for allegations that those discharges are causing harm to to um, to uh, other other private property in the area or creating a public nuisance. So there are certainly a whole number of, of powers that state and local and private parties will still have to appropriately address water pollution, regardless of how the Supreme Court construes the, the scope of the Federal Clean Water Act. Just real quick, I think, Damon, that point about the Maui, the Maui point about discharges, something I don't think gets enough attention. That's a really important point. Just my thoughts on that. And so I, I got a question from the audience that actually mirrors one of my questions and something that I, you know, you might get asked, um, you'll we'll see, we'll see is, do you think the major questions doctrine is applicable in this case? And, and, and before you even give the answer, could you briefly even explain what the major questions doctrine is? Major questions doctrine is, um, uh, I, I would call it sort of a, a canon of statutory interpretation. It, it comes up a lot in the context specifically of when courts should defer to agency interpretations of, of arguably ambiguous statutes. But basically, the, 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 the theory is that Congress does not intend casually to defer the resolution of significant policy or economic questions to administrative agencies. And thus, the court will only uh, read a statute to affect such a delegation of power if Congress is really clear in the statutory text. And if Congress is not clear, then it means that 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 power has not been delegated. Now, I don't believe necessarily that the major questions doctrine as such is particularly relevant to the Sackett's case, but I do think that there is a closely related canon of construction. You might even call it kind of a, a particular application of, of the major questions doctrine that is relevant. And that is what, what you might call the federalism canon. It's this principle that the court has employed in, in many different cases, that the court will not read a statute that is ambiguous to radically rework the traditional federal state balance of power. Again, if Congress is clear about it, then that's the end of the matter. But if the statutory text is not clear that Congress intended a radical reworking of this federal state partnership, then the court's not going to read the statute to do that. And I think that is incredibly relevant here to the Sackett's case because, 
A very broad Clean Water Act, like what EPA is, is advocating in Sackett's case, effectively converts that statute into a land use statute and converts EPA into a zoning administrator, as the Sackett's case quite ably demonstrates. I mean, the, the, the EPA and the Corps are telling the Sackett's whether they can build a home. That's a classic power reserved to, to state and local authority. And so I think reading the statute to result in that kind of, of, of significant reworking of federal state balance of power is something that, that, that should give, uh, give the court pause. And for what it's worth, um, I'm sure many of our viewers are, are familiar with the West Virginia v. EPA case from this past term in which the major questions doctrine was prominently employed. There, concurring in that case, Justice Gorsuch cited, among other things, the Swank decision which is the Clean Water Act decision from about 20 years ago where the court concluded that the Army Corps couldn't regulate isolated waters, quote-unquote isolated ponds, under the Clean Water Act. And in reaching that result, the court relied upon this federalism canon. And Justice Gorsuch, in his West Virginia concurrence, notes that there is a close relationship between this major questions doctrine and the um, federalism canon. You could even almost think of it as a conclusion that that a radical reworking of the federal state balance is per se a major question and, and therefore uh, triggers this clear statement requirement. But however, however you categorize the canon, I think certainly the federalism aspect of uh, EPA's interpretation is very much at play in the Sackett's case. In, in this federalism point that you're bringing up, I mean, you brought up the swing, but it, in the Rapanos case, it's brought up a lot. So at least a plurality opinion talks about it. It is absolutely. And in fact, that's one of, again, one of the, the big arguments that Justice Scalia has in his opinion against Justice Kennedy's test that um, uh, he even has a line, I, 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 something to the effect of uh, to, to say that the significant nexus test does not align with traditional understandings of federal state power. Uh, t- I think it's, quote, to test the heights of understatement or test the limits of understatement. And I think he's absolutely right, because precisely because the significant excess doesn't in practice really have any meaningful uh, guardrails on EPA and the Corps' authority, precisely for that reason, it then does result in this radical reworking of the federal state balance. So to get to a a somewhat related question from the audience, do you think the case will require the Supreme Court to decide whether Chevron is still good law? Do you think Chevron comes into it? No, and you know, I should say that makes the Sackett's case also kind of unique in that it's hard to think of an environmental case before the Supreme Court that doesn't involve agency deference, but this is one of those cases. In fact, EPA hardly even um, mentions deference, much less Chevron deference, in its, uh, in its merits brief. And I think the reason for that, I mean, certainly from our perspective, we would say deference is neither here nor there because we believe that the Clean Water Act's text is clear, at least clear to the extent that you can deduce this two-step framework that we've offered. But even setting aside that, I think one reason why deference hasn't played a big role is that EPA has hitched its wagon to this significant nexus test. I mean, EPA says, we believe this significant nexus test is the best interpretation of the statute. Problem is the significant nexus test is not from the statute. Again, it, the, the the term significant nexus is not a statutory term. It's a term that was used in one Supreme Court opinion and then was developed further in a concurrence by Justice Kennedy in a later Supreme Court opinion. So in that context, it's very very inapposite 
to talk about deference. Because although we might think maybe Congress would, would want to give agencies some authority to construe their own statutes, who's the best interpreter of Supreme Court opinions? I mean, EPA is certainly competent to construe them, but they don't have any institutional advantage over the best interpretation of a Supreme Court opinion. Presumably, the Supreme Court itself would be the best one, but there's no reason why the Sackets can offer an equally plausible interpretation of a Supreme Court opinion. And so I think because, because of this peculiar con uh, context where the government is basing its case upon uh, a, a, an undeniably a statutory concept, that it really does preclude a, um, uh, Lisa, it really does preclude a vigorous reliance upon deference. So, Damien, we've got a couple of questions from the audience that I think are kind of connected to one, the kind of administrative state and also congressional action. So, let me start with, as you know, the Biden administration is, well, they're about to finalize, I think they finalized and not yet published, and uh, their new WOTUS rule. Um, how do you think all this is going to impact EPA's rulemaking? Because it doesn't look like it's stopping, because it's, I think that rule is actually before OMB right now. So, Looks like they're moving forward. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I honestly am, am somewhat surprised that that they are are expending employee hours in, in finalizing this rule when when everybody knows that the Supreme Court is going to be speaking on the very same issue uh, in the near future. That that being said, I mean, I, I don't think that that the proposed rule really has much uh, impact on. Uh, if any impact on the Sackett's case, I mean, there, for one very basic reason, even EPA has acknowledged that that uh, the Sackett's particular case should be adjudicated based upon sort of the state of the law when the controversy arose, when the compliance order was originally issued, and when the um, uh, when the dispute went into federal court. But even setting aside that sort of very um, technical distinction. I think more broadly, the reason why the proposed rules really either here nor there is it merely intends to codify the very same regulatory regime that produced this controversy that the Sackets have been dealing with. Mainly, what is the proposed rule do? It says we want to basically say the significant nexus test is the standard for jurisdiction. And that is the very same standard that not only led EPA to issue the compliance order in 2007, but it's the very same standard that the district court in the Ninth Circuit in, in the Sackett's case used to affirm EPA's jurisdiction. So uh, really, regardless of the fate of that particular proposed rule, I, I don't think it'll have any impact on the case. I think it's just the other way around. I think the Sackett's case will have a significant impact upon uh, not only the scope of EPA and the court's authority, but also will have, it have a significant impact on, on future rulemaking. Um, do you think, I'm going to ask the final question from the audience, um, and I'll just ask it directly the way it is. Do you think this issue needs congressional action to truly be solved, as in Congress needs to write a longer, less in, ambiguous definition? In terms of congressional fix, I mean, undoubtedly, Congress can enact a statute that is clear. And I, and I think that that um, is a prerogative that, that, that nobody disputes. The likelihood that Congress would do something like that, I think, 
certainly uh, as we stand here now is, is pretty minimal, in part because the Supreme Court is going to be speaking up, uh, upon the scope of the act, but also because the Clean Water Act, like a lot of federal environmental law, has become so politicized that it's, it's very difficult, I think, for a proposal that is significant to itself garner enough votes in order to uh, secure enactment. I think perhaps, and this was touching upon something we were, we were discussing in response to the last question, I think perhaps, although maybe there's not much role for Congress as a political science matter, there may be some role, though, for EPA and the Corps, even after the Sackett's decision. You know, just because the Supreme Court issues a rule adopting, we would hope, the two-step framework, that doesn't mean that, that there's no role for, for the agencies to have clarifying rulemaking. I mean, the, the first step of the Sackett's test, for example, this line drawing problem. Well, perhaps criteria as to when is the line drawing problem present? When are the circumstances, um, what are the baseline circumstances for deciding whether there's a line drawing problem? Do, do we look at normal circumstances in the area? What do we do if there's an unusual drought or if there's a flood? I mean, there are a lot of areas where the agencies can fill in the gaps. And I think that that will be an appropriate exercise of the agency's rulemaking. But I think until we hear the Supreme Court rule in the Sackett's case, any other sort of rulemaking, frankly, would be premature. So, Damon, as we wrap up, what are some key points you want the audience to take with them? I, I, I think one key point which we touched upon already is that if this can happen to the Sackets, it can happen to anybody. The, when you have such a, a normal, unexceptional, uh, typical use of private property, building a home within a, an existing residential subdivision, and even then can, can you precipitate this significant controversy dealing with potentially hundreds of thousands, if not more, dollars in civil penalties, I think that shows you that there's something wrong with the statute, or at least there's something wrong, excuse me, with how that statute has been interpreted. I think the second thing, the second big takeaway is that, again, as we noted before, this is not just simply a case about landowners, even if you don't own any land, even if you, you just dwell in an, in an apartment, it's still something you should care about because the significant costs of Clean Water Act compliance make it really any sort of productive use of, of green fields, for example, much more expensive. And that creates costs that are carried on to the consumers. And then the last point is, this is not about environmental Armageddon. If, if the Sackets win, it does not mean that our drinking water will be polluted, that uh, our streams and creeks will be befouled, that the Cuyahoga River will catch on fire again because of all the pollution that was in it in the 1960s. None of those things is going to happen for a number of reasons, not the least of which being that the states and local governments and private parties under common law principles will be fully empowered to protect important water resources to ensure that those types of, of gross pollution um, uh, disturbances don't happen again. So I, I, I think that, that whether you are a private property uh, owner or whether you're an environmentalist, this is not a case that raises those types of questions, but it is a case I hope that will ultimately resolve a lot of abuse by administrative agencies over the last half century and thereby perhaps vindicate to some extent the private property rights of a lot of people in this country who have not been able to make the most productive and reasonable use of their property. Damien, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's invaluable to hear your expertise and I I know that many of us are very excited for this upcoming case, and we're thrilled that you and 
Pacific Legal Foundation are leading this effort to, to finally bring clarity to the question of what waters are regulated under the Clean Water Act. And of course, I want to thank all of you who are participating in today's program or watching a recording of the, of the event. I encourage you to visit heritage.org to learn more about the WOTUS issue and all the important work being done by the Heritage Foundation. Also, please visit heritage.org to learn more about future events. Again, thank you. Have a great day. We look forward to seeing you again soon.